Welcome to N20XX. This series takes the listener, year by year, into the future. From 2040 to 2195. If you like emerging tech, ecotech, futurism, permaculture, apocalyptic survival scenarios, and disruptive science, sit back and enjoy short stories that showcase my research into how the future may play out. The buildings look like warehouses, most long and near train tracks all over the country. They house stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks of caged chickens, each cage too small for a chicken right before it's grown enough for harvesting. Ken's Tucky Chicken Farms, like all other businesses after the media attack, closed for the most part. Employee cars no longer arrived in the morning. Trucks didn't pull up to the loading bays and the auto forks didn't load the trains. Skeleton crews arrived at most of the hundreds of buildings to keep the chickens alive. Many fast food restaurant workers, those who could still work, were transferred to the care of chickens. Weeks later, large trucks pulled up to the farms at night. Men swinging assault rifles and tools for forced entry broke into the farms, loaded up with chickens conveniently boxed in cages, and drove off. There were shootouts, Police sometimes arrived, in most cases outgunned. Employees on the grounds at night did as little as possible to protect the goods. In some cases, the employees aided and joined the looters. Sometimes employees stole carloads of chickens and drove off never to return. Ken's Tucky Chicken franchise was gutted of a workforce. Locals came out and ransacked the buildings. The mess outside the buildings grew, empty cages, blood, clouds of feathers, and wandering chickens. Some held up a building and defended it which always led to shootouts and death. Even if the occupiers stopped one invader or group, there were always more to come. Dead chickens were cooked to preserve the meat, often before defeathering. Smoke, smells of burned feathers, and smells of rotting chickens filled the air for miles. When the starving city folks flooded rural areas, they trespassed in the chicken buildings day and night. To make off with one chicken often involved gunfights. Any freed chickens pecked around outside where people who had never seen a live chicken in person chased them around in circles. Local gangs sniped visitors before going in to salvage as much usable meat as could be had. Human bodies decomposed outside. Stripped off wall panels and doors lay in paved lots. At some point, People visited the buildings without incident. Desperate souls picked through debris, casting bloody cage after bloody cage aside to try to find a single morsel. Madison and Carl, mother and son, drive through Montana to the reservation in the early hours. Frost covers the ground. They set the heat to minimal to save power, and both wear many layers. Madison sleeps wrapped in a blanket, her plump cheeks reddened by the cold. Carl, lanky with big hands, sits behind the wheel to take over when the auto drive glitches. His stomach grumbles. Look how empty the landscape is out here. How long will it be before he can get back to the city and pick up where he left off? In the distance, Godzilla-sized machines stand where the tunnels for rich people were being built before the attack. His mom's car drives through workers' camps. Except for the company-issue tents, the camps look like homeless sites, overwhelmed with litter. They must be abandoned. 
all those out-of-state laborers went back to where they came from. The steering wheel wiggles so Carl grabs and steadies it. They're getting close. All kinds of new buildings hug the border of the reservation, apartments, stores, a bowling alley. Like the rest of the U.S., many store windows are boarded up or busted out. Ahead, another car drives in the same direction. Mammalian algorithms in his head tell him it's probably natives in that car. Even when the car is too far away to tell the make or model, he has a hunch. Far behind, two more cars follow. After being the only ones on the road for so long, it's a relief to see others. There it is, the carved wood sign at the southeast entrance. Crossing into the reservation, how old was he the last time he was here, 13, 15? At first, the land looks barren, the way it always has. But they pass a group of new buildings. Next to each building, fat pipes stick out of the ground and tower over the roofs. Machines sit on top of each pipe. What are they? They pass the short, super-wide tanks. He knows what those are, inland fish farm tanks that get rave reviews. Because of John and John Fish Farms people can still eat their beloved seafood. The news never says that natives own John and John. His mom says the fish farms are running at a loss, or at least she said that before the media attack. The Russians didn't target natives with the media attack. Sure, some natives were exposed, but much less than other populations. The council griped when Misty Josiah insisted on investing funds in stockpiling food. They aren't griping now. America can't agree if it's undergoing a famine or not, and lots of natives are returning to the reservation where they have food to eat. How'd she know? The word has gotten out. You can come and work for food but don't tell any white people. We don't want them deciding they have a better use for our food than we do. The res is already heavily guarded because of the fish farms. It's not like we're sitting high and dry. All the businesses we open that cater to the work camps don't bother to open for business for now. The diners, laundromats, and convenience stores have seen days go by without one single customer. What was serious revenue has run dry. Before the hordes of visiting laborers left, we brought all the food we have to the middle of the reservation and guarded day and night. We went out to the camps and work sites asking for food, so the outsiders thought we were starving. Carl yawns as the car pulls up outside the culture building that's been turned into a center of operations. A group stands in a circle out front. Shivering, Carl's mom runs ahead of him and slips inside. As Carl walks past the group to give him a nod and study him, they wonder who he's related to. He wants to laugh. Inside down the hall, his mom talks with a woman who leads her into an office. Carl finds himself standing in front of the job's desk. An old dude is saying, You have three choices. Help build the new fish farm, help take water from catchment tanks to the purification house, or help chase off trespassers. Carl doesn't need to think about it. I'll chase off the trespassers. The old man wearing the below tie says, You sure about that? Carl says, More than sure. The man says, How old are you? Carl says, Nineteen. The man says, It's not a game. Trespassers have guns. Carl straightens his posture. I know that. 
I'm serious. I can do it. The man frowns, twists his lips, and hands Carl the address of the drone piloting trailer. Carl takes it moving his eyebrows up and down. Thanks. My mom and I arrived this morning. We didn't get breakfast. The man points down the hall. The cafeteria is down that way. As cold winds blow down from Canada, the cargo truck waits next to the drone trailer. Three pilots inside the trailer fly drones all over the reservation, surveying the rocky ground. In the back of the truck, Carl waits with three others for word from the pilots. They sit on upside-down five-gallon buckets. Solar panels on the roof power a heat lamp set on the truck floor. Carl cracks his knuckles. How long do we have to wait? The other three wear VR shades and make gestures in the air with their hands. Bert, a retired cop, says, Son, be glad things are quiet. By Bert's hand motion, Carl can tell he's playing a flight simulator. Pilot envy? Carl says, Don't we do target practice in the meantime? Fabian says, You want to freeze your ass off outside? The two others laugh. Carl stands, brushes off his pants, and leaves out the back. The others continue to move their heads and hands around. The explosion causes one to fall over. Fabian almost falls over but catches himself. Bert tries to jump to his feet but falls back against the wall. They pull off their VR shades and climb out the back. The pilots also come outside. Carl turns around laughing, holding a rifle. Damn, that's loud. He sticks a finger in his ear. That hurt my ears. On a Sunday, when Carl is leaving the cafeteria, he notices a big meeting going on in an auditorium and steps in to see what it's about. He sits in an audience of around 100 people. Speakers on stage whisper among themselves. The woman sitting next to him bounces a baby on her lap. She has one of the new photonic connect links. Like a bulky earring, it pierces the middle of her ear and hangs as low as her ear low. She wears two thick sweaters and worn-out hiking boots. Her baby stares at things with an expression of bewildered wonder. Carl pats her arm. Hey, what are those big pipes next to all the buildings? She blinks when she smiles. Those are power storage bells. They're over wells that go down pretty deep. Weights inside slowly fall to drive generators. They store electricity like batteries but work in cold climates. Carl watches more people find seats. Wow. Why do they have them? She says, because of all the brownouts. The rest of Montana wasn't getting so many brownouts. Every year we depend less on state power. Carl says, it seems like we'd have plenty of electricity with all the wind turbines. She says, those are hooked up to state power. Just because those are on our land doesn't mean we won't be the first to get brownouts. Carl says, well, good for us, huh? She says, it's just one of the things Misty started. She heats with old computers. Carl meets her eyes. What? She says, you know how everyone talks about photonic computers. Carl nods. Yeah. She says, well, photonic computers have made silicon computers obsolete. Our reservation bought old supercomputers for dirt cheap. 
We use them to heat buildings. You know how cold it gets here, Carl says. What do they run on the computers? She turns the baby on her lap. Not sure. Good question. Bit mining or something like that, Carl says. Misty is pretty smart, the woman says. She can tell the future, Carl says. Oh, right. The meeting doesn't take long to bore Carl. The five people on stage use a bunch of long, official-sounding words. One speaker from the Navajo reservation is rough around the edges which Carl can't help but admire. There's Misty, the one everyone talks about all the time. She doesn't act like a soothsayer. In Fargo, he lived near the college, and she reminds him of the women he'd see going there, upbeat and clear-eyed. They're talking about the fish farms and needing other sources of food. He gets it. The winter is a bad time to make more food and reserves don't last forever. They just have to talk about everything in a way that puts him to sleep, going on about contracts to feed America and the bottom line. Blah, blah, blah. Hey, he knows something about food. He stands up. Excuse me, everyone. The meeting is thrown into general confusion. Elder Red Calf at the mic stops, mid-sentence. All the heads in front of him now turn, showing their faces to Carl. People murmur and scrape chairs on the floor. Carl speaks up. I worked in a meat lab in Fargo. The woman next to him tugs on his coat. Sit down, Elder Red Calf says. Young man, we'll have time for questions and... Some near Carl shrug and laugh. Carl looks all about and slowly sits back down. He turns to look at the woman next to him, but she continues to look forward as the meeting resumes on stage. After a few minutes, Carl stands and squeezes past knees and seat backs on his way out. Walking toward the doors he sees a woman around his age with her hand on an earpiece, talking. Her eyes dart about behind thick glasses. As he passes, she takes his arm. Can you wait just a moment? He stops gladly. Sure. She talks over her earpiece. I can do that. Will do. She faces Carl. Misty Josiah wants to talk to you about the meat lab you just spoke of. Can I arrange an appointment with you to see her? Carl nods. Sure. When he leaves the building, the cold wind hits him. Should he have mentioned that the meat lab is closed? He hopes he doesn't disappoint her. Before the meeting, Carl's nervousness surprises him. He walks up and down the main hall until he finds her name on the door and knocks. A woman's voice says, Come in. He opens the door. Misty sits behind a desk. Her long hair is held in a loose braid in the back, and she wears a beaded choker that contrasts nicely with her brown skin. A screen in front of her as wide as a windshield folds up. The woman who stopped him earlier sits at a smaller desk typing on a laptop. Misty gestures for him to have a seat. So, you worked in a meat lab? Carl sits and puts his hands in his coat pockets. Yes, it wasn't the stem cell meat you hear about or the plant-based made to taste like meat. The company grew yeast that was engineered to grow the same proteins as beef. Misty says, I've heard about it. It's in Fargo? Yes. 
Our corporation, John & John, owns property in Fargo. The next morning, Carl meets up with Ed, a mechanic and advisor to Misty Josiah, and Martel from the Navajo tribe. They walk to a converted Mustang with the latest fast precharger. Ed is in his thirties and carries himself like a quarterback. Martel could be Carl's grandpa. He has a big belly and labors to breathe. Carl opens the back door, but Martel insisted he gets the back. Ed drives because the car has no brains. Once on the road, Carl yawns and holds tight to his mug of coffee waiting for the car interior to warm up. He wants to get back to Fargo, but not like this. This may just be a short visit. They mostly have the road to themselves. He lets Ed and Martel do most of the talking. They sound like lifelong buddies though Carl is pretty sure they only met this morning. Martel puts on his VR shades and you can tell he's watching videos or something though he can still keep a conversation going. Ed seems to love to control the car. At first, Carl watches but the novelty wears off. They don't want to put any music on. They tell him not to eat all the food. They both act like pushovers, always nice and eager to get along. Carl puts in his earbuds, plays his music, and sticks his feet up on the dash. Before he knows it, he wakes up. Three buildings ahead sit next to the road. Martel says, Hey, pull over. I gotta take a leak. Ed says, Yeah, let's stop and take a break, walk around a bit. The car pulls over in front of a convenience store whose window glass is broken in and shelves inside are ransacked. A gunshot goes off. Pop, pop, pop. Martel yells, Drive! His VR shades fall off his face. The Mustang kicks up gravel as it accelerates. Through the back window, Carl sees a hunched woman wearing a man's coat jump through the store window and level a rifle at them. Duck! He flattens himself against the seat. Pop, pop. They continue to pick up speed. Pop, 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 pop. He feels and hears metal punctured. One of the back tires explodes. The back of the car jolts as the outer tire tears. Hitting the asphalt, the car jumps as the out tread comes off in one piece. Now lopsided, the car scrapes the road. Carl sits up. The buildings are down the road. Ed pounds his fist on the steering wheel. Shit! This was my dad's car. I take it to car shows. The metal rim on the road makes a hellish scraping sound. Martel says, just keep going. All three standing behind the car, Carl offers to change the tire, but Ed won't let him. Carl is sure Ed sniffles and tears up. Man, it's just a car. Most people don't even own cars. When Ed opens the trunk, Carl notices the burlap bag that holds the guns. Let me take one of the guns. The others say nothing so Carl opens the top of the bag and pulls out the top rifle. He walks around to the side of the car turning the rifle around to have a better look at it. Ed pulls the spare out of the trunk. He calls to Carl. Don't lean on the car. Carl says, I won't. He pulls his scarf up over his chin and gazes at a row of mansions up on the hill. A new car all covered with dirt drives by. When he and his mom drove to the reservation, they noticed newer cars that were all dirty. 
His mom supposed the cars were auto taxis whose owners had perished. Lots of people who buy cars will rent the cars out to people when the owners don't need them. While the owners are home or work, their cars make them money by giving people rides. But the cars can't wash themselves. Is someone truly dead if their car still drives around giving people rides? Back on the road, they drive through an industrial park where signs on windowless buildings say things like, New Produce, and New Fruit. Army trucks are parked outside most of these buildings. Martel says, Is the army growing the food now or just guarding it? Ed asks, You know about the Mexico food controversy? Martel says, What's that? Ed says, Dems started funding Mexico as a proactive way of reducing illegal immigrants. The U.S. paid for desalination plants and indoor farming as long as Mexico hired people who'd otherwise tried to cross into the U.S. So fewer people are trying to cross illegally but now Mexico is selling food to U.S. buyers, the same food that the U.S. subsidized, so Republicans are shouting Bloody Mary. Martel says, I heard that because Uncle Sam has been so bad at keeping people out all these years, the U.S. saved itself from a huge problem. Have you heard that one? Ed says, I have. Martel says, Imagine if the U.S. learned to keep everyone out in the 20s. The numbers who wanted in would just go up and up and up. Like after a few years instead of thousands at the border there would be millions building up until the dam breaks. Carl says, Ed, let me drive. Ed shakes his head. No way. Do you even know how to drive? Carl says, You can teach me. Ed says, I can teach you when we're back on the res. Carl says, It can't be that hard. It's like a video game. They pass two groups of wanderers who carry luggage and push grocery carts. These aren't seasoned homeless. Though dirty. The clothes they wear were nice-looking not too long ago. With fear on their faces, they clutch guns and shy away from the road just before the Mustang drives past. Ed speeds up. Martel brings out a book with a blue cover and reads. Carl turns around in the seat. What's that? Martel pats the book. It's the AA Big Book. Carl makes a face like he's going to laugh. Oh, you're one of those. Nah, I'm just kidding. Martel says, We all do what we gotta do. Carl gives him a sideways glance. Is it true that AA is Christian? Martel says, It was founded by Christians, but it doesn't have to be. This here is the secular big book. It doesn't mention any god or religion. Carl says, That's good because Christians make their gay children suicidal. Martel says, Religions change all the time. Christianity is pretty extreme these days. That's why I got a secular big book as soon as I heard it came out. Carl says, Well, do you believe in some kind of deity or something? Martel shifts on the seat. I believe Earth is a mother. I believe she's sacred. I believe that she's alive just as much as you and I are alive. But I'm not talking about a deity. It's more like an understanding of what gives life its value. Carl says, Aren't you supposed to believe in some kind of god or goddess? Martel says, In secular A it's all about finding love with a capital L. But you're encouraged to find what fits you. Carl says, But isn't love a god? 
They say God is love. Martel says, That's something you can decide for yourself. Carl looks all around like he's thinking of something to say, then he turns back around. They drive by a charging station but there's a long line of cars waiting to charge. Carl says, Oh shit, what happened there? After a minute when no one says anything, Ed says, What could have happened is the power went out and a bunch of auto taxis pulled up to wait to charge but ran out of charge while waiting, so when the power came back on, the taxis couldn't run anymore. Now they're all stuck there. Marta leans forward. Ed, how are we doing on charge? Ed says, We need to charge soon. Martel takes out his foldable. Nearest charge stations. He slides his finger on the screen. Should I give you directions? Ed says, Sure. The next two stations have the same problem as the last. The sky grows dark with clouds and snow rides the wind at an angle. All three feel anxiety and stress building up. Martel taps away at his foldable. I heard about something on Medusa. Carl says, What's Medusa? Martel says, It provides anonymous network access. Someone posted government records of all the homes where people died recently. What we need to do is look up the nearest home where no one lives and charge from their house battery. Ed livens up. Wait, wait, wait. He's right. Even if the state power is off, we can look for houses with solar panels. But we need to talk about this. We were shot at for parking in front of a building. They sit parked up the road from a two-story that sits back from the road. Condensation forms around the sides of the car windows. Ed and Martel watch the house. Carl takes a hard look at the surrounding area. No cars. No other houses. Martel says, They have plenty of solar. And look, the two cars in the drive are both plugged in. I wish I had binoculars. Carl jumps out of the car and starts walking toward the house, holding onto the rifle. Ed grabs the steering wheel. Carl, get back here! Was I that stupid when I was his age? Carl walks up onto the porch and pounds on the door. He turns to Ed and Martel and waves. Martel says, What's he think he's doing? Carl opens the door and steps inside. The two in the car watch. Minutes go by. Ed says, Should we? Carl comes back on the porch waves the rifle in the air, and shouts. It's okay. Nobody home. Ed and Martel grumble. With Fargo on the horizon, Carl tries to contact the lab meat company. No one answers any of the numbers. He emails the addresses on the website but gets no answers. He has the personal number of the assistant to the owner and tries calling that number. Trina? Hi, this is Carl. How are you? Oh, really? That's good. Um, I'm calling because I'm trying to get a hold of Mr. Fan. Oh, really? Really? Yes, I'll keep that in mind. Yeah, that'll work. Carl's foldable buzzes as he receives the text. He looks at the screen. I got it. Thank you? No, I'm fine. You too. He tries calling his old boss's number but gets no answer. Ed says, What do we do now? 
Carl says. I do have his home address. Ed says. Is that such a good idea? Martel says. What about the company? Should we try going by there? Carl says. It's closed. Trina said she talked to Mr. Fan a few weeks ago and he was at his house. I think we should just go there. Ed says. You like getting shot at? In the morning, a little outside Fargo, they pull to the side of the road and park. Carl looks at his foldable. It's the only house up that drive. Martel looks around at all the large, new houses. I just worry one of his neighbors doesn't like us stopping here. Do you think you're ready? Carl is getting out of the car. Yeah, I'll text you. He shoves the door, and it squeaks and slams shut as he walks up the drive. Ed lifts an automatic off the floor and rests it on the seat next to him. Martel hunkers down in the back. Let me know if something happens. Icy wind stings Carl's face. After two rows of houses on either side pass, he can see the house ahead through the trees. In his mind he practices reaching back, grabbing the pistol tucked under his belt, and holding it forward with both hands, legs spread. What must have been a nicely kept yard is now out of control. Bushes and vines all look wild. Rotted leaves blanket the road. The drive makes a circle in front of the house. Wind has blown a pile of leaves up against the garage doors. Most of the blinds are open on all those windows. Here goes nothing. He steps up to the burgundy door with inlay frames and presses the doorbell. After waiting and pressing the bell again, he tries the handle. It clicks. Opening the door, he feels warm air on his face. Hello? Dust covers the foyer tile floor. Hello? He walks in, quietly shutting the door behind him. A living room with three couches looks untouched. Dust softens the tops of everything. The kitchen is another matter. Stainless steel containers, some made for kitchens, some made for distilling, refining, and brewing crowd the counters. Crusty rags litter the floor. A smell of dank smoke itches the back of Carl's throat. LED lights blink on and off on some of the equipment, and wisps of steam rise off the largest sealed containers. Becoming alert and excited, he moves faster through the rooms, unsure if he should call out or just be ready to run. He climbs the stairs and walks down a carpeted hall, looking into each room. In the master bedroom, someone wriggles around on the disheveled bed. Carl walks in. Mr. Fan? Tom Fan sits up pulling off VR shades. Carl? I don't have work for you. The Asian man with salt and pepper hair, wearing a muddy leisure suit, stares at him. Carl sucks in air. Mr. Fan, Tom, how are you? Are you okay? Tom remains seated in bed. His upper lip twitches. Ah, I've been better. Carl looks for a gun on Tom. You're okay with me dropping by like this? I was worried you might chase me off with a gun. Tom rolls his head around on his neck and slaps his face. I've never been a gun owner. Carl pulls some clothes off a reading chair and sits. Has anyone? Do you know that people are looting? Tom says. Yeah, I've had a couple of break-ins. They were in a hurry to find food and run. 
I let them search and take what they wanted. I told them I could make them food if they stuck around. I don't think any of them believed a word I said. Carl says, Um, are you sure you're okay? Tears well up in Tom's eyes and spill out, rolling down his cheeks in streams. He shakes convulsively and bares his teeth. It's... I saw it on TV. It's been poking at me ever since. He scratches his hands so hard, it looks like the skin will tear. Carl partly stands and then sits. I can get you Pexin. Don't you know about Pexin? Tom shakes his head. No, no. I can't. He snorts and uses a bed cover to wipe away the tears and snot. Carl stands. Sir, do you mind if my two friends come here? They're outside. Tom waves a hand around in the air above his head. Do whatever. I don't care anymore. Carl takes out his foldable. Ed Martell and Carl sit in the living room watching Tom through the wall of windows. Ed says, Why is he golfing outside in the middle of winter? Carl says, He's aiming at that house. Look, it's flying right toward that house. Martell says, Why can't he help us? Carl says, He won't take Pexin. Ed says, He doesn't seem like an anti-vaxxer to me. Isn't he a scientist? Carl says, I don't know. Martell says, There are other ways. He looks to me like he could use time in a sweat lodge. Ed says, You mean like the one you built on the res? Martell gets up. Yeah. Ed and Carl watch Martell outside talking to Tom. Tom drops the club, wanders off, and comes back with a saw and a hatchet. Over the next few hours, they cut down some tree limbs. Ed says, May as well get comfortable. This is going to take some time. Carl says, I'm going to help. Ed says, The exercise will do you some good. Ed digs a can of bean soup out of a duffel bag and heads for the kitchen. A few hours later he looks out the window. Tom pokes a metal pole in a roaring bonfire. Carl uses a pitchfork to remove a stone from the center and carry it into a dome tent. After sunset, Ed sits up on the couch when Martel, Tom, and Carl walk in, all three sweaty and shirtless. Ed says, Aren't you cold? Carl raises his arms out like a crucifix. I could jump in an icy pond right now. Martel nods approvingly. Tom wipes his hand across his forehead and flings sweat on the floor. I haven't felt this good in such a long time. The feeling is still there, but it's like it's resting right now. Martel says, You shared many important things. I didn't understand the media attack like I do now. You're brave to have kept yourself alive all this time. Carl says, And now Tom can help us get that contract. Tom nods with a hint of sadness in his eyes. The next day in Fargo, all four become quiet as Tom's sedan takes them down looted streets. Probably because of the cold, they don't see anyone. The car pulls into a parking lot outside a tall brick building. The employee entrance door sways in the wind. Two large windows are smashed in. Before everyone has gotten out, Carl has already entered the building. He shouts, Anybody home? Don't shoot, it'd be a waste of bullets. 
The three others follow. Cylinder tanks dominate the main room. The highest catwalk crosses the room three stories above the floor. Tom looks over the pipes, hoses, mechanical pumps, and heaters. I don't see much out of place. Looks like someone tried to drive that forklift. Carl re-enters the main room. They raided the break room. I'm pissed. They took the coffee and cup of noodles. In the lab, Tom finds some of the equipment broken or tampered with. An ashen sunburst shape covers a hot plate. Someone managed to make something explode here. Ed and Carl fix the door while Marta watches Tom in the lab. On a screen, Tom drags a 3D representation of a DNA splice to a larger segment and connects them. What quality are you looking for? Probably the cheapest, right? We can simplify the process down to three fungi. Have no doubt, this will be meat, all the same proteins, the same oils, and flavors. It cooks exactly like meat. It'll even go bad exactly the way cow flesh goes bad. I used to use at least 10 different fungi, but I can reduce it to one breed for the collagen, one for the muscly meat, and one for the fat. The next day Ed manages to contact an owner of a rental company. He and Carl pick up a mulcher trailer and head to the nearest neglected property to hack away at vines and shrubbery. Martel sanitizes equipment and follows a sketch Tom drew to assemble some of the pieces. Tom incubates fungi then inserts DNA. Outside the building, Carl and Ed run the plant matter through the mulcher three more times. Then they bring it in wheelbarrows into the building and feed it to a tank. On day three, Martel opens a hose valve to fill the tank with water. It takes half an hour before the water level rises above the plant matter. Tom carries in a tall flask of what looks like beer. This will grow the collagen. This fungus forms long filaments. He pours it in. His face shines with perspiration and he twitches and snorts. Tonight, we add the muscle fungi. There's something people want. It's called meat. We like to cook it. We like to put it on our sandwiches, to barbecue it, all kinds of great stuff, but we make it so inefficiently. We don't need to build a cow every time. Why make a perfectly good cow just to break it into pieces? That costs a lot and takes a lot more time. It involves pollutants. It takes up land. It's probably inhumane to the cow. Think about all the trucks it takes to watch over the cows, move them, and move their feed. We don't need animal breeding, calf birthing, vets, or injecting hormones. We could do away with feeding our meat tons of antibiotics. Martel says, Okay, okay. Maybe we should take a mental health break. Tom doesn't seem to hear. Oh my god, and talking about how water is expensive, hard to get and has been making meat costlier. We don't have to make sure the cows are hydrated. We don't need to grow meat machines out in the open where they're losing water every day. We're water insecure and our nation of cows is just pissing and sweating most of our water away. Do we want cow eyeballs? No. Do most of us want cow spinal cords, cow spleens, or cow brains? No. All we want is that tasty meat so let's just make that. When people of the future look back at us they're going to laugh at the amount of wasted effort. 
Our era is one of running 50 miles to advance one mile. The three others give each other worried glances. On the fourth day, they add the fats fungi and wait. That night when Tom opens the smaller lid on top, a warm, strong smell of meat makes the three others cheer. Tom grimaces and chews his fingers. Martel says, that's a strong odor. Is there something we can do about that? Tom says, not much we can do about it. Before the attack, some of the neighbors sick the city on us about the smell and we had to win a lawsuit to stay in this location. Carl says, when do we get to have some? This is what I loved about this job, Barbecue Fridays. The next morning after a mostly steak breakfast, Carl and Ed drive across town to a brewery Misty wants them to check out before John and John buys it. Once there, Ed calls her. This one is huge. Misty says, well it was Budweiser's rival. Ed says, I'll do a video walk around and send it to you. Misty says, thanks Ed. On the drive back, before they park, they see three trucks parked out front that have big letter T's painted on them denoting Tucker Group affiliation and large American flags hanging off the backs. Ed screeches to a halt in the middle of the street. Carl pulls the safety on his automatic and opens the door. Ed says, Wait. Five men pull Tom and Martel out of the building. Tom and Martel don't wear coats and hunch over. Carl runs toward the building, firing. Pop, 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 pop. One of the men folds up like a hinge and falls to the ground. Two others scurry for cover behind their trucks. Carl slows to a walk holding the rifle at eye level and fires. Pop, 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 pop. Tom, Martel, and the two assailants jump like they've all received a high-voltage shock. Across the crouch of one assailant, dark spots saturate his pants. He lets go of Martel, drops his rifle, and falls to the ground. Carl runs forward. Pop! The bullet hits his chest, shattering the collarbone. Many guns go off as Carl falls to the side, hits the street, rolls, and unleashes a spray of gunfire at the fronts of the Tucker Group trucks. Thank you for listening. My landing page is solomeshan.com. There you can find the companion website to this podcast that includes a timeline and illustrations.